Lord, we've sung many great things, and uh, that, that last song we just sung particularly grabbed my attention that uh, we, we are seeking not a city in this world, but we are seeking a city that is to come, a heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. Lord, we are, we are made citizens of that kingdom through faith in Christ, made citizens of that city. And Lord, we are, we're, we're living for that world that is coming, not, not for this world that is passing away. And it can be easy to forget, but uh, when, when hardship comes and persecution comes and we are faced even with something like martyrdom, we, we would do well to remember that uh, all of that that is doing is serving us and bringing us into that, that place that we are longing to go to where our, our Savior is King and where sin is gone and where eternal rest is to be found. We thank you that uh, you have saved us unto such a destiny, and nothing will get in the way of that destiny. Lord, we thank you that uh, you will bring us safely home through faith in Christ, and we pray that our faith in Christ would be strengthened as we study his word today, and we pray that any who do not yet know Christ, that they would come to faith in him. And Lord, uh, today's passage is, is difficult to understand, more difficult to explain. To explain. And so, Lord, in our weakness, we ask for your help. Help me to explain what is hard to explain. Help your people as they labor to understand what is hard to understand. May your spirit illuminate us, our minds, that we may see clearly what is there in your word. Lord, we are weak and it's hard for us to grasp these things, so we need your help. We thank you that you will help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're finishing chapter 4 of Galatians today, so turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. We're looking at verses 21 to 31. It's a long passage, but I think we do need to read it just to help us get our arms around it before we start walking through it. So let me read that for us. Galatians 4, starting in verse 21. Paul says, Tell me... You who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking. For these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise." But as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now also. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. On August 4, 1857, Frederick Douglass the former slave who turned into an abolitionist, he said this in a speech that he gave, 
Quote, A man who does not value freedom for himself will never value it for others or put himself to any inconvenience to gain it for others. Let me read that again. He said, A man who does not value freedom for himself will never value it for others or put himself to any inconvenience to gain it for others. Paul was a man who valued his freedom in Christ. He knew what it was to be a slave before he experienced freedom in Christ. He was a slave under the condemnation of the law. He was a slave to the dominion of sin in his life, to the extent to to which he tried to destroy the church of God. But God got a hold of his life. And we have already studied Paul's testimony. And this is what he says about himself back in chapter 2 of Galatians and verse 20, speaking of that freedom that he had gained in Christ. He said, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, no longer the old Paul who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Paul had been freed, and he was so zealous for that new freedom that he had in Christ that he was willing to inconvenience himself so that others may taste of that freedom. He was willing to endure any degree of suffering he needed to endure if it meant that he could bring the freeing gospel of Christ to someone who needed to hear it. The Galatians, however, are on the other end of the spectrum. They have stopped valuing their freedom in Christ. They are counting it as something not worth that much because they're willing to throw it away. They're playing with the idea of throwing that freedom in Christ away for the sake of coming under the law, which false teachers are encouraging them to do. They have stopped valuing the freedom they have in Christ. And so Paul, as one other way to try to get them to reaffirm their faith in the gospel, he's going to give them a history lesson. And he's going to an unlikely place to teach them that lesson. He's going to the law itself to teach them that lesson. He's going to force these believers to ask themselves this question. Would they rather be free in Christ or would they rather be slaves to law's condemnation? And he's going to use the law itself to drive them to ask that question. And that's a question I want you to ask yourselves before we begin here. Do you, as a believer in Christ this morning, do you value the freedom that you now have in Jesus? And do you value it to such an extent that you're willing to inconvenience yourself in order to bring that freedom to others, to help them see Jesus Christ? To not value the freedom you have in Christ is to stop laboring for others to have it. And it's also to put yourself in the dangerous position of being willing to give up that freedom, to go back to bondage. You know, you you throw in the trash what is worthless. If you think the gospel is worthless, you're in danger of throwing it in the trash, aren't you? So Paul, through this passage, he's also going to help us today value our freedom in Christ more. So we'll start working through this passage Paul is seeing that the 
Galatians in being willing to put themselves back under the law, they clearly don't understand the law. They don't understand what it's saying. Because if they did, they would never be willing to put themselves back under the condemnation of that law. So Paul, he's going to first give them the law's history record. He's going to share with them the record of history that the law itself gives. And we see that in verses 21 to 23. Let's start with verse 21. Paul says, Tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? Do you not listen to the law? Now Paul here is using the word law in a little bit of a broader sense than he's used it thus far. Up until this point, when Paul has mentioned law, he has been meaning the commands of God, the commands which man transgresses, the commands which condemn man for his sin, the commands of God that he gave through Moses in the Old Covenant, the Ten Commandments. Here, when Paul says law, he means something a little broader than that. Here, when he says law, he means the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those were the the first installment of revelation that God gave his people, Israel, by which he would govern them and by which he would reveal himself to them. Moses authored those books as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit. And those five books, they of course included the commandments of God, But they also taught Israel how God created the world. And they taught Israel how he called one man out of the whole world to be uh, the man that he would show grace to and give amazing promises to, Abraham. And he also showed in those first five books how God uh, delivered Israel from their slavery to Egypt. That is the law that Paul is talking about here. And he's asking these Galatians, do you not listen to the law, to the first five books of the Bible? Clearly, they're not listening to it because they're desiring to get back under the condemning uh, law of Moses. Now, Paul, he's going to refer them to a specific portion of that law, of the, the Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And he's specifically going to refer them back to Genesis 16 through 21, those several chapters. And he's going to summarize it for them in verses 22 to 23. Look at verse 22. Paul's summarizing this little section of the law. He says, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. That's his summary of Genesis 16 through 21. Let's, let's head back there. I just want to point out a few things in that section of Scripture. So head back to Genesis 16 to start with. And as you're turning there, remember God called Abraham. Out of everyone in the world, he called Abraham to leave his country and to follow him, to go to where God was going to lead him to go to. And God made amazing promises to Abraham. He promised Abraham a land that he would have, he and his descendants forever. He promised Abraham a son and that he would multiply his children to more than the stars in the sky. 
And that was quite a promise because Abraham was an old man and his wife was an old woman and they had no kids, none at all. And they didn't expect likely to have any kids, but here's God promising, I'm going to give you a son and you're going to have more descendants than the sand on the seashore. Look at chapter 16, verses 1 to 3. I'm pointing you here because after God gives that promise to give children to Abraham and to Sarah, ten years go by with no kids. And Sarah starts to get a little antsy about the promise that God made. And she comes up with a plan. Chapter 16, verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Verse 3, after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. So Hagar, Sarah's slave, was given to Abraham, and she conceived and she bore him a son. And his name was Ishmael. That is the son of the bondwoman that Paul is talking about. But then come to chapter 17 and look at verses 15 through 16. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. God says, no, I'm not fulfilling my promise through this little uh, plan you made up and carried out. I'm going to give you a son through Sarah. Then Paul, uh, God reaffirms this promise in chapter 18. and verse 10, God said, I will surely return to you at this time next year, and behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And then when we get to chapter 21, we see that amazing promise fulfilled. Because Sarah is 90 years old, and God is telling Abraham, I'm going to give you a son through her. The fulfillment is in chapter 21, verse 1. Then the Lord took note of Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. So there we see it. We see Ishmael born to a slave woman by the natural process of human procreation. But on the other hand, we see Isaac born to a free woman, a 90-year-old free woman, who was enabled through the promise of God to conceive and bear a son named Isaac. So that's the history that the record of history that, that Paul points these Galatians back to. But now, as we continue on in Galatians 4, Paul is going to apply that history to the Galatians' situation. But before we go on, I just want to press pause and consider with you for a moment the importance of the Old Testament. Notice, Paul is pointing these believers who are on the precipice of apostasy 
And what he's using to restrain them from that is the Old Testament. There are many today who say you don't need the Old Testament. We can unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. We're New Covenant people. We don't need Genesis through Malachi. Well, that's a bunch of malarkey, isn't it? Because if Paul is using the Old Testament to prevent the Galatians from committing apostasy, from forfeiting the freedom they have in Christ, don't tell me that I don't need what Paul is giving the Galatians. We do need that, don't we? So don't listen to anybody who says you don't need the Old Testament. Well, if you want to remain free in Christ, yes, you do need the Old Testament. So that is the record of history Paul points them to. Now he's going to give them the law's history lesson in verses 24 through 27. Because it's not enough to simply read biblical history. You have to learn from it. You have to learn from it. Romans 15.4 says, For whatever was written in earlier times, the Old Testament, was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. We are to learn from biblical history, not just read it over by rote. Let's look at verse 24 as Paul begins to draw lessons from the record of history. Verse 24, Paul says, this is allegorically speaking. For these women, Hagar and Sarah, are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Paul, he is going to apply Genesis 16 through 21 allegorically. He's going to explain it allegorically. Now, what does that mean? Well, the the Greek word translated allegorically speaking in my Bible is the word allegoreo. You can hear our English word, allegory, can't you? Now, Paul does not mean what we mean when we say allegory. What is an allegory? Well, a good example would be John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, right? You've all heard of that book. It's a a long allegory. And in that book, The Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan uh, tells a story that he literally dreamt up. He had a dream, and he wrote that dream down in a book called The Pilgrim's Progress. And in that book, you have the main character named Christian, and he goes on a journey to the celestial city. And along that journey, he meets a number of people, and he encounters a number of difficult situations. And John Bunyan, in telling that story, he intends every detail of that story to teach you a deeper truth about the Christian life. That's an allegory, and Pilgrim's Progress is a good example of that. But here, when Paul says that he is going to interpret allegorically Genesis, he does not mean that Genesis 16 to 21 is made up. He doesn't mean that. Clearly, he he believes Genesis is history, infallibly recorded for us. And so certain is he that it it really happened, as written, is that he uh, bases his whole doctrine of justification by faith on the history of Abraham, right? You can read about that in Romans chapter 4. We read about that in Galatians 3. Remember chapter 3, verse 6? What, what detail of Abraham's life does Paul pick out in Galatians 3, verse 6? Abraham believed God, 
and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And from that, Paul says, therefore, you are justified by believing in God, just like Abraham was. If Genesis didn't happen the way it said it happened, we can take Paul's doctrine of justification and just huck it out the window. We cannot be confident that that's true. But because Genesis happened, it is true. So Paul is not saying that Genesis didn't happen, that it's made up, okay? So what is he saying then? When he says, I'm going to explain this allegorically, what does he mean? Well, I thought the commentator Doug Moo explained it very well. This is what he said, quote, Paul's claim to be giving an allegorical interpretation means simply that he's using one set of realities, the narrative of Sarah and Hagar, to speak of another set of realities. Moo goes on to say, quote, what he is doing is showing how that narrative can be seen to foreshadow the realities of the new covenant that he is defending. In other words, Paul is kind of doing typology, or he sees in Genesis an illustration of old covenant and new covenant realities. He's just using the true history of Genesis to communicate another truth. That's all he's saying. And in verse 24, he begins to do just that, right? What does he say in verse 24? He says, these women, who are the women? Sarah and Hagar, right? They are or they represent what? Two covenants. And he begins to describe one of those covenants. He says, one, one of these covenants, proceeds from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. Now, what covenant came at the foot of Mount Sinai? Yep. The law, the Ten Commandments, the Old Covenant, right? That's the covenant that Hagar represents. And Paul says that this Old Covenant, the law, bore children to be slaves. In other words, those who belong to the Old Covenant, those who are under the law, they are slaves. Now, how can he say that? Well, Paul has already thoroughly explained that to us, hasn't he? Back in uh, chapter 3, verse 10, for instance, Paul says there, for as many as are of the works of the law are under what? A curse, right? And then throughout the rest of the chapter, he explains how the law shuts us up into sin, how the law uh, keeps us imprisoned until the faith of Christ to be revealed. So apart from faith in Christ, to be under the law is to be a slave. And Hagar, as Sarah's slave, is a good illustration of that. Verse 25 in Galatians 4, Paul continues to uh, interpret allegorically, explain allegorically. He says, now this Hagar, who was a slave, is Mount Sinai, which is where the Old Covenant was given, in Arabia, and corresponds to the present Jerusalem. For she, the present Jerusalem, is in slavery with her children. Paul here points out the location of Mount Sinai. It was where? In Arabia, right? I'm asking you questions to keep you engaged, all right? I'm throwing you softballs just so I know you're still with me. Where is Arabia? 
Where is Mount Sinai? It's not where? It's not in the promised land, right? It's outside the promised land. Paul sees in that an illustration that those who are under the law, which was given at Sinai, are not entering into the promise, right? It's a good illustration of that. Those under law are outside the promises. And Paul here, he's making links in a chain. As he builds this allegorical explanation, he's connecting true events from Genesis to these spiritual realities that he's drawing out for us. And he links Hagar to Mount Sinai and the Old Covenant, and he links that to this present Jerusalem, which the Jerusalem is, that he's speaking of is the one in Paul's day. And Paul says that this present Jerusalem is in what with her children? Slavery, right? Why are they in slavery? Because they're under the law still. And anybody who's under the law is a slave. Why are they still under the law? What did they do to Jesus when he came offering salvation? What did they do? They crucified him, right? So they rejected the new covenant of salvation that he was giving in order to continue to try to pursue their own self-justification by law-keeping. So they're still under the law. They're still slaves, this present Jerusalem that, that Paul is talking about. Now, the Judaizers who came to Galatia, remember those false teachers who are trying to make Jews out of the Galatians? They are trying to make the Galatians citizens of this present Jerusalem, which, in other words, is they're trying to make Galatians slaves. And the Galatians don't understand that. So Paul is using Hagar as an illustration of what will happen to them if they come back under the law. They'll just be a slave like Hagar was. They will not get to experience the promise. Moving on to verse 26, Paul continues to explain allegorically. He says, But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. Now that sounds odd. It's hard to understand. But I think if we realize that Paul is skipping some steps, we can understand what he's saying. In verses 24 to 25, Paul carried us from Hagar to this present Jerusalem, right? He linked Hagar to Mount Sinai in the Old Covenant, which he linked to this present Jerusalem. In verse 26, Paul just jumps straight to the Jerusalem above. Well, how does he get there? If we follow the same pattern that he laid out in 24 to 25, how does he get to the Jerusalem above? Well, he's talked about one woman, Hagar. Who's the woman he's not talked about yet? Sarah, right? And if Hagar was connected to Mount Sinai in Arabia, Sarah is connected to what mountain? Mount Zion in the promised land, right? And if, if Hagar is connected to the old covenant, Sarah's connected to which covenant? The new covenant, right? And Paul is saying that, that the Jerusalem above, that is the one that is born out of the new covenant. That is the one that is free, and she is our mother. We, as believers in Christ, are citizens of that Jerusalem. Not this present Jerusalem that's still under slavery, but that coming Jerusalem that is free. Now, what is this Jerusalem above? Well, 
Other terminology for it is the new Jerusalem or the heavenly Jerusalem. What is that? Well, let's go over to Hebrews 11, where we see that spoken of. Hebrews 11 and verse 9 through 10. The author of Hebrews is speaking about Abraham and how Abraham was living by faith. Hebrews 11 verse 9 says, By faith he, Abraham, lived as an alien in the land of promise. Remember, God called him to leave his home, brought him to Canaan, said, I'm going to give you this land. He lived there in the land of promise as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. He was looking for something that God was going to make, that God was going to give him as his inheritance. Go down to verse 13. All these, that's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, verse 13, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they're seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one, a a country from heaven. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Speaking of that coming Jerusalem. Drop down to chapter 12, which we read for our call to worship. Chapter 12, verse 22, that says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels. As believers in Christ, that is the city we've come to. That is the city that we have been made citizens of and that we are waiting for. Chapter 13 of Hebrews And verse 14, that says, For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Judaizers were trying to make the Galatians citizens of this present Jerusalem. Paul says, you're citizens of the coming Jerusalem, not this one. And then let's go over to Revelation, where we get even more descriptions of this coming Jerusalem. Jerusalem, this heavenly Jerusalem. Revelation 3, verse 12, Jesus is sending a message to the church in Philadelphia. Revelation 3, verse 12, Jesus says, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes where? Down out of heaven from my God and my new name. That's why it's called a heavenly Jerusalem. It's coming from heaven. That's its point of origin. Then go to Revelation 21. where John, the apostle, who wrote Revelation, he's given a vision of that coming Jerusalem when God makes a new heavens and new earth. 
Revelation 21, verse 2, John says, And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband. Verse 10, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. That Jerusalem above is going to be the capital of the new heavens and the new earth after Christ returns. And Paul is forcing these Galatians to consider, are you going to trade that Jerusalem for this present Jerusalem? The Jerusalem that crucified Christ, are you going to trade the new Jerusalem for that one? Now, you all have had probably Bible reading plans that try to take you through the Bible in a year. And so if you've done a number of those plans, you've read through Genesis, rather, 16 through 21 several times, probably. At any time when you've been reading through that section, have you ever thought, wow, Hagar is foreshadowing the old covenant? Have you ever thought, oh, Sarah is foreshadowing the new covenant? Probably not. I know I never have, right? So it can seem like this is quite a stretch, Paul. You're, you're, you're reaching here. I don't really see how you're connecting one to the other. I don't see how this is foreshadowing what you're talking about. Well, if you carefully read Isaiah, then you would begin to see how one foreshadows the other. Did you know that outside the book of Genesis, there's only one place in all the Old Testament where Sarah is mentioned? That place is Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 51. Let's head back there. Isaiah 51 verse 2. Isaiah 51 verse 2 is where Sarah is mentioned, but let me back up. We'll read verses 1 through 3. But let me just give you a little bit of context first. In the book of Isaiah, we see God speaking through Isaiah, and he's pronouncing judgment upon Judah and judgment upon the capital of Judah, which is Jerusalem, because of their unbelief and their sin. And how does God judge Jerusalem? He brings what country against them? Babylon, right? He brings Babylon against them, and Babylon conquers that city. And over a period of a number of phases, they, they bring the uh, people of Judah into exile. And because of that, Jerusalem is left desolate. You know, the temple is broken down, the wall is broken down, she's robbed of all her people, the city is left barren and desolate. But we know that God always preserves a what of his people? A remnant, right? People who believe in God, people who didn't fall for the idols, people who long for the righteousness of God. And throughout the book of Isaiah, uh, God gives words of comfort to them, and he promises deliverance to them and restoration. Isaiah 51 is one of those words of comfort. Look at chapter 51, verse 1. Isaiah says, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness. That's the remnant, those who long for the righteousness of God. You who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord. 
he, he calls on them to do something. He says, look to the rock from which you were hewn and the, to the quarry from which you were dug. He's speaking in metaphors. And then he, he tells us what he's really talking about in verse 2. He says, look to Abraham, your father. He's saying, look where you came from. They were descended from Abraham. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who gave birth to you in pain. When he was but one, I called him. Then I blessed him and multiplied him. So Isaiah is calling on on these, uh, these believers of Judah to consider what God did with Abraham and Sarah. When they were barren and had no kids, what did God do? He multiplied them, didn't he? And now uh, Isaiah applies that to the, this remnant. He wants them to consider what God is going to do to Zion, patterned after what he did to Abraham and Sarah. Verse 3, Indeed, the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places, and her wilderness he will make like Eden, and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and a sound of melody. Just like God brought joy to barren Sarah, he's going to bring joy to barren Zion, Jerusalem. And then throughout the rest of chapter 51 and 52 up until verse 12, God continues to encourage Jerusalem, saying he's going to deliver Jerusalem. He's going to restore Zion. And then we get to chapter 52, 13 through chapter 53. And who is being talked about there? Jesus, right? The one who will actually accomplish deliverance for his people. And then we come to chapter 54 and verse 1, which is what Paul quotes in Galatians 4, verse 27. Let me read Galatians 4, verse 27, and then I'll go back to Isaiah 54, verse 1. Paul says, For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. That's Isaiah 54, verse 1. Isaiah prophesied during a time when Jerusalem of his day was prosperous. But what would God do? He would desolate that Jerusalem. But after Jerusalem became desolate and people were longing for the salvation of that Jerusalem, God would take that desolate Jerusalem and make it prosperous in the the kingdom to come. And that's what God did with Sarah. She was barren and he made her prosperous. Hagar looked like the more prosperous one, right? But it was Sarah who would become the mother of nations. And Jerusalem is spoken of here in Isaiah 54 as a mother, just like Sarah was a mother. He talks about uh, her being barren, but then in verse 3, what does he say about Jerusalem? Isaiah 54, verse 3, You will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your what will possess nations? Your descendants, your seed. Jerusalem is a mother with many descendants, and they will, her descendants will resettle the desolate cities. So Jerusalem is spoken of here as a mother, just like Sarah was a mother. Then go to Isaiah 66. 
Isaiah 66, where this mother language comes out very strongly about Jerusalem, about Zion. Isaiah 66, and this language comes out, verses 7 through 13, but let me just start in verse 10. It says, Be joyful with Jerusalem and rejoice for her, all you who love her. Be exceedingly glad with her, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied with her comforting breasts, that you may suck and be delighted with her bountiful bosom. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you will be nursed, you will be carried on the hip and fondled on the knees, as one whom his mother comforts. So I will comfort you, and you will be comforted in Jerusalem. Paul says, that's our mother. The Jerusalem that's coming. The Jerusalem that God promised to restore, that is our mother. And Isaiah patterns that Jerusalem after Sarah. So Paul, in Galatians 4, he's not doing anything new. He's not stretching. He's just building off of what Isaiah taught. Don't you just love how Scripture connects together all the way through? It's fascinating. Now, let me apply that to our lives as Christians. You know, Sarah felt, even though God had made her a promise, she felt in the, in the meantime, in those ten years, like she wasn't very blessed. Just like Jerusalem desolated, God was making these promises, but no doubt people felt that the desolate Jerusalem wasn't very blessed. As Christians, we are children of promise, but sometimes it doesn't feel like we are blessed. You know, life as a Christian might not seem all that prosperous right now, but just wait, right? Sarah found out God was true to his word. Jerusalem will find out God is true to his word. And we too, we are finding out day by day and ultimately when we come to eternity that God is faithful to his word. But false teachers, they take advantage of the pain you feel now and they promise you prosperity in this life. And they try to get you to believe what they're teaching so that you can find comfort in this life. But the Bible says we're not citizens of this world. Your comfort is in the age to come. And that comfort will never be taken away from you. In verses 28 to 31 of Galatians 4, Paul brings us the conclusion of history that the law teaches the law's history conclusion. <clears throat> Verse 28, Paul says, And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. What did God promise to Abraham and to Sarah? Let me just uh, read these verses for you. Genesis 17, 4. God promised Abraham, You will be the father of a multitude of nations. Then in verse 16, God promised Sarah, I will bless Sarah, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. So just like God promised Abraham to be a father of nations, God promised Sarah to be a mother of nations. And just like Abraham believed God's promise, so Sarah believed God's promise. Hebrews 11.11 11 says that by faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. 
Yes, she laughed at first, but she really believed what God had said. And Galatians 3, 7 says, Be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. When you believe in Jesus, you become a son of Abraham, but you also become a son of Sarah as well. You're following in her footsteps of faith. And when you believe in Jesus, you become a part of that multitude of nations whose parents spiritually are Abraham and Sarah. You are children of promise, just like Isaac, through faith in Christ. But as I said, it doesn't always feel that way here and now, right? Kind of like when you're a kid and you do something bad and your mom and dad, they discipline you. They discipline you because you're their kid. You know, if some other kid does it, they don't take him aside. You know, they do it to you because they're your parents, right? They discipline you because they love you and they're your mom and dad. And you as their kid, you don't necessarily enjoy the discipline they're giving you. You are blessed because they're disciplining you. But in the moment, you wish you weren't their kid because it hurts, right? But later on, looking back, you see, that was good for me. I am glad I was taken through that. I'm glad they, they disciplined me. Well, as Christians, we experience pain in this life. We experience the discipline of the Lord in this life. And that's what Paul refers to in verse 29. He says, But as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, Isaac. So it is now also. Paul here is drawing on Genesis 21, 8 through 9, which talks about how after Isaac was weaned, Ishmael mocked him. Ishmael mocked Isaac. The son of the slave mocked the son of promise. And it's no different today. Nothing has changed. Those who are under law, who are condemned, who are still slaves of sin, they mock those who have been born again. They mock those who are citizens of that coming Jerusalem. Following Christ is hard. It's hard to be a child of promise. In this life, you will be mocked, just like Isaac was mocked by Ishmael. And you may suffer worse than that. And remember that it's in those moments of weakness and suffering that wolves in sheep's clothing will come. And they will whisper to you. And they'll say this to you. Just water the gospel down just a bit. You know, just sprinkle a little bit of legalism in there. Sprinkle in just a little bit of worldliness. And then they won't mock you anymore. Then you'll be comforted. You won't have to suffer like you're suffering now. And that's what the Judaizers are telling the Galatians. You know, just come back under the law. And later in Galatians, Paul will say, they're saying that so that they don't get persecuted anymore. So when you're suffering, it might sound good when others come and give you an out. But understand that what they're really saying is this. Put the shackles back on. Go back in that prison cell. Get back under the whip of the law. And then you'll be comfortable, you know. Maybe you will. But when judgment day comes, you won't. What did Paul say in Romans 8, verse 18? He said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Verses 30 to 31, Paul says, But what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. 
For the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. Paul there quotes from Genesis 21.10, which is what Sarah said to Abraham after she saw Ishmael mocking Isaac. She said, get her and that son out of here. They're not going to be heirs with my son Isaac. And she might have been a little cold in that. And Abraham was distraught, like, Ishmael's my son. I I don't want to send him away. But God said, it's okay. I'll take care of them. But it's through Isaac that your descendants will be named. It'll be fulfilled in Isaac. I'm not going to give Hagar and Ishmael a spot in the promised land. That's for Isaac, the one I promised you. And it's just that way for all who are trying to earn God's favor through works. They will be cast out. They will not be allowed to participate in the coming glories of salvation. It's only those who are children of promise, who are believers in Christ, who will get to experience that. So what is the conclusion drawn by the law? It's this. It's better to be a son of the free woman than the son of a slave woman. It was the sons of Sarah that would inhabit the promised land, not the son of Hagar. And by faith in Christ, we are sons and daughters of the free woman, Sarah. Jesus, as we close here, Jesus in John chapter 8, verses 34 to 36, he said this, Everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. Hagar and Ishmael didn't remain in Abraham's house. He goes on, he says, the son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Who is Jesus? He is the ultimate son of Abraham. He is the son of God. And if you turn away from your sins and you put your trust in Jesus, you become a son of Abraham. You become a son of God. And you will be able to abide in the house of God forever and ever. So turn from sin and trust in him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how your spirit teaches us and helps us to understand what is difficult to understand. And I just pray that you would impress upon our hearts what you want us to take away from Genesis 4, 21 to 31. Lord, may you use it to help us to value the freedom we have in Christ, to treasure that we have been made sons of the living God through faith in Christ that we are sons and daughters of Abraham and Sarah. And as such, we are now citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem. And the day is coming when you will bring that new Jerusalem down out of heaven. You will put it in the new heavens and the new earth, and there we will dwell with you forever and ever. And Lord, anybody who does not know Christ yet, help them to see that they are currently outside. And they, if they do not turn to Christ, they will be cast out into outer darkness. Help them, Lord, to turn to Jesus by faith, we ask in his name. Amen.